0: Hello and welcome to the King's Weekly Podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, Editor-in-Chief and Staff Writer for No Ceilings NBA. And I'm here, of course, with my co-host, the founder and curator of the Basketball Intelligence newsletter available at basketballintelligence.net, Ray LeBove. Hello there, Ray.
1: Hi, Nick, and welcome, everyone.
0: We have a special episode today. We don't, unfortunately, have a special guest for you, but we will be doing a recap and preview. So we will be recapping the Kings games from the previous week and previewing some of the games to come. So the recap and preview will be segments on our episodes going forward, although they will likely be shorter than today's episode because it's the first week of the season. And so that's, you know, what we have to focus on at the moment, but also because, you know, Ray and I get a chance to talk through all the Kings games from the past week, preview the next week. So again, this will be a recurring segment going forward, but longer than usual today, because Ray and I have a lot to chat about. And let's get started with the recap portion. And to start with the recap portion, we are going to go all the way back to Wednesday of last week for opening night in Utah. And I think the only place that we can really start with that particular game is with the Harrison Barnes experience. So for those of you who might have missed the game, Harrison Barnes absolutely torched the Utah Jazz in the first half of that game, went off for 27 points, his career high and a half by a pretty sizable margin. His previous career high was 22 and a half. Unfortunately, he did not go on to break his career scoring high, which is 36 points, but even with his second half being not as loud as his first half that was the clear biggest headline at least in my mind from a game in which the kings ended up winning pretty handily over the utah jazz 130 to 114 so ray what are your thoughts on sort of that game one and the harrison barnes experience in particular well i kind
1: of think two minds of the harrison barnes experience when you said about it. unfortunately it's like um on the one hand uh what i think is fortunate about it is that it showed that the Kings don't have to be overly dependent on their stars. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, the, the way they got him the ball, the way he asserted himself, uh, the team orientation I thought was really good. And the other thing that was good about it is there. you hear many, many people thinking about, um, as he gets older, how his skills uh, will be diminishing. And the fact that he could produce a game like that, Uh, currently uh, is is reassuring. It's
0: interesting with Harrison Barnes because, you know, on the one hand, he's an 11-year NBA vet at this point. On the other hand, he... Came into the NBA direct after one year at UNC. So he only just turned 31 before the start of this season. So, you know, he's clearly on the tail end, really past the tail end of his prime, I guess. But I mean, he's someone who has this veteran experience and who can go off for scoring bursts like this. And, you know, for a Kings team, as we'll get into, that will be down there biggest star for the week to come. you know They will need performances like this from Harrison Barnes. They'll need occasional games like this from, say, Keegan Murray, and they'll need games like this certainly in the next week from Malik Monk. But, you know, really with Barnes, he's at a point where he could sort of ride off into the sunset with the kind of career he's had. But clearly we saw in that first game that when the team really needs to lean on him heavily, they can. And especially after a disappointing playoffs for him last season that's really good to see to start the season so now that we've talked about the barnes experience you know the concept of that is that the kings will need some players to step up right you know not only to fill the deer and fox void which of course we'll get into in more detail later on in the podcast but Also, this team has some new bench pieces, and those new bench pieces have really been key for the Kings in these first three games. So just to sort of start out here, I mean, JaVale McGee, I think, was the biggest positive surprise, not even surprise, really, but, you know, biggest positive contributor in my mind off the bench these past few games of the new crew of the new players to the Kings this year. I mean, the element that he provides defensively is going to be massive for this team. And particularly talking about game one, I mean, the Kings managed to win by 16, but 64 of Utah's 114 were in the paint. And that's the kind of situation that is why JaVale McGee is here, right? To sort of help lock down the paint in these kind of situations. And, you know, that's the situation where JaVale went four for four in that game, you know, plus minuses in. Season long samples are iffy. So plus minuses in one game samples are even more iffy, but it does say something to me at least that he was a plus thirteen, which was better than anyone on the Kings save Fox, right? He's someone who can come in and make a difference for the Kings, both as an athletic rim runner, which is not quite something they had last year in a seven-footer. You know, Chimezi Metu did that sometimes. But what Cheville also brings on the defensive end is going to be huge for this team. And it's really a sign of the front office acquiring the right kind of players in the offseason to fit this team. You know, we'll get into Sasha and Chris Suarte in a moment, of course, but JaVale McGee was the one who really stood out to me as someone who filled a real position of need that the team did not have filled last season.
1: And it's pretty ideal that um, his role is a limited minutes role. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's for for a number of reasons to give Domas uh, relief. And yeah. also to maximize the likelihood that um, he can produce something, you, you wouldn't expect him to be. I mean, he's not a starting center in the league by a long shot. But um, only having to play like whatever it is, twelve minutes or so, is ideal for for him. You bring up a good point that I, I, I would like to uh, examine a little more deeply. And that is, um, of course, it's the players and the coach that are on the court that are responsible for, for what happens. But let's take a little deeper look at the incredible job that uh, Marty McNair and Wes Wilcox have done in putting the team together and advancing it uh, from how well they put it together for the first year and now taking the right approach, not skipping steps and filling in as appropriate. So going back, they had home runs on the draft, on free agency, on trades, uh, on hiring the right coach. Um, quite, uh, remarkable. Nobody succeeds typically on in each of those regards. And I'm probably even leaving out one or two. So a remarkable, and it's, of course, they've been acknowledged, uh, by the association and, and the media for the great job that they've been doing. Patience is, is, is required, um, not, uh skipping steps as i said and look what they did you know in the off season and who they brought in you know none of these are you know mind boggling pieces but um they were the right pieces uh, whether it's Vazenkov or Duarte as you mentioned um McGee i think this is a real model that if um other teams had enough sense they would follow and you know it really does speak to the history uh, of the kings where you know, the the ownership now has hired the right people and has trusted them for the first time to make the basketball decisions without interference, it appears. And wow, the recipe is just really working well. So the result of that, among other things, in addition to the fact that we the Kings had such a good year last year, um, the team building continues. and. Focusing as, as we've spoken and, and you started the conversation about now the state of the bench. You, you know, focus significantly on McGee, but let's take the not just the new players that have come in, but we have holdovers like Malik Monk um, and Davion, uh, Lyles, et cetera. Add to that uh, Sasha And McGee and Duarte, well, the Kings now have a very, very solid bench and a a great depth that uh, Coach Brown uh, can trust. And I give just incredible credit (laughs) to uh, Monty and Wes for the job that they have done in constructing the roster.
0: Absolutely. And I mean, I think the main reason that I wanted to highlight McGee is just because backup center was a real issue for this roster last season, and one that I felt they really needed to fill in the offseason. And, you know, they brought in a bunch of different players who, you know, even just before we get to JaVale McGee, I thought it was very smart for them to give New Orleans Noel a shot. You know, he didn't end up making the roster, but just like McGee, he was the kind of player they needed in, you know, a defense first center who's an excellent rim runner. I mean, if we're talking about, you know, the rest of this bench, we'll get into the elephant in the room of the De'Aaron Fox injury later on in more detail and sort of how that will necessitate the bench stepping up. But I mean, Malik Monk was huge in the most recent game for the Kings. But really, I think the big, difference is that in all of these games you know not counting the garbage time minutes right but you know in all of these games the kings have essentially run 10 deep where last season i mean their starting lineup was you know one of the best in the league it continues to be that this season but it was closer to eight deep than 10 deep and you know that's the kind of thing that especially as you mentioned in the previews the kings were incredibly fortunate with their health last season and We can hope that the De'Aaron Fox injury is not a portent that this season will be more injury plagued than last season, but it's hard to assume that there won't be at least slightly more games missed this season than there were last season just because of how lucky last season was. And so to have someone like Chris Duarte now who can, you know, be a, he's more of a defensive guard than Kevin Herter who can come off the bench and also still fill Kevin Herter's role as an incredible handoff guy with great chemistry with Debonis Sabonis. You know, you've got Sasha Vizenkov in there who we'll talk about in more detail later, but he's someone else who can provide an offensive spark plug for the team. And also at six, nine, you know, he fills a forward slot where outside of Keegan Murray and Harrison Barnes, the team didn't really have any larger forwards on the squad last year. That's another sort of hole that they filled. And, Going 10 deep as opposed to 8 deep makes a huge difference when you're talking about a team that almost by the law of averages is guaranteed to miss more games from their star players than they did last year.
1: Well, uh, just to emphasize that, having taken statistics in college,
0: (laughs) you know that
1: um, if you you have a historic um, uh, record relative to uh, games missed to injury in the 50s where uh, the next team was in the 90s, and multiple teams were close to 300, uh, the chances of that happening again are close to nil. Um, it's, you know, it might be true, and I, and I hope it is, and I think it probably is that the Kings have one of the best um, training staffs uh, in the league, but they're not miracle workers. right? Uh, you know, the, these miracles don't really strike very often. So um, the historical nature of the health Um, which is almost without precedent, Uh, it's it's not going to happen. We already see that with Box getting hurt. So it's not going to happen, but it doesn't have to happen in the same way that it did last year for the very reasons that um, you were just talking about.
0: So before we move on to the next game, just one more sort of point, which is really just early season as a whole, but you wanted to talk about, you know, the... Damanis Sabonis run offense for this team and you know how the DHO game works, how the fit works with Domas and the rest of the squad. And I mean, you know, I mentioned the Domas Kevin Herter two-man game and you mentioned in the previews, and I'm sure we'll love to mention again, the Chris Duarte Damanis Sabonis two-man game back from when they were together in Indiana, you know, especially with the recent injury to De'Aaron Fox, there's going to be even more weight on Domas's shoulders to you know, sort of keep the offense running. And obviously the team won't have as powerful of a charging at the rim, driving towards the rim element with De'Aaron Fox out of the picture. But, you know, the two-man games between Domas and Kevin Herter, Domas and Chris Duarte, Domas and Keegan Murray, those are almost certainly going to be emphasized more in the week to come with De'Aaron Fox's offensive punch out of the lineup.
1: Kings had to give up a great player to get Domas. Mm -hmm. Uh, No doubt about that, but what he has brought to the team is pretty remarkable. And, you know, he obviously has holes in his game, but every player has holes in their game. Um, but, but what he brings, and you mentioned a lot of it, the, the dribble handoff is as good just about, you know, maybe Jokic, right? But yeah. Yeah, beyond that, that doesn't count, right? <laughs> Jokic doesn't count any discussion that you have. Nobody's, nobody's Jokic. Um, but the dribble handoff game, his passing, his rebounding is just you know, almost sensational. Um, the spirit he brings, the, uh, the, the hustle and the team orientation that he plays with, is just remarkable and um, really crucial and critical to uh, the success of the team.
0: So let's move now into the second game, and we're going to start with you here because you were at this game in person. I unfortunately couldn't attend, but you know it was <laughs> it was great to see the pictures that you sent me after the game. Clearly, it was a uh, Fun environment, even if the Kings didn't quite get the result that they wanted. But since you were there in person, I'm just going to throw it to you here. What were your main takeaways from that game, too?
1: I think I have a one-word takeaway.
0: I think I know what it is, but let's throw it out there for the listeners anyway.
1: They got Stephed. Yep. <laughs> you know, and the thing that um really resonates with me about that is that performance really was as good as you're ever going to see Steph, or maybe anybody do, really. Um, and it was so good and uh, so visible, and so that D'Aaron scored 22 points in the fourth quarter, and it almost goes unnoticed because the Kings got stiffed. Um, and, uh, you know, that can happen to any team. Now, you know, you can have conversations about how maybe they could better defend him. As soon as a team figures out how to do that, please let me know. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, that was, to me, I mean, it's like, When you have a player on on a team that scores 22 points in the fourth quarter, and it's almost not noticeable because... Steph was in also in the game. Um, That to me is like the, the, the biggest thing that I took from that.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was that was the big takeaway. You know, when Steph goes 14 for 19 from the field and 7 of 10 from the floor and perfect from the free throw line, there's only so much you can do. I had one sort of larger scale takeaway, which I did at least want to bring up because I found it interesting at the very least, which is the Kings outscored the Warriors in the first quarter of that game. And the Kings have outscored their opponents in the first quarter of all three games this season. And granted, it's a ridiculously small sample size. But as of right now, the Kings lead the NBA in first quarter scoring. And this was something that was interesting to me because I just assumed they would be at the top of the leaderboard from last season because, you know, they were a team that always started strong. And because they had the greatest offensive rating in league history last season, right? So seemed safe to assume that, but... Despite being the league's leading scoring team last season, they were actually only eighth in first quarter points last year, which was surprising to me. I sort of would have expected that number to be higher because, you know, for a few years now, even going back to the pre Mike Brown era, you know, they were a team that really struggled out of halftime, but were always pretty strong to start the game. And so the Kings, you know, outscoring the Warriors in that first quarter was an interesting thing for me to keep in mind, given how the rest of the game went, right? I mean, you know, the Kings made it an eight point game by the end, but it was decided before the fourth quarter started, really. And that's something interesting to me, because last season, it really felt like this team always got out to a hot start. And maybe it wasn't quite as hot as I thought it was last year. But so far in the limited sample size of this year, they've been the highest scoring team in the NBA in first quarters.
1: You know, I wonder, and maybe maybe you noticed and maybe you haven't, um, as to the eighth place of last year, whether that was – were teams bunched? Was it like – was eighth place really the same as third place? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, or was that – so that can be a little bit misleading. I don't know whether it is or it isn't. I, I haven't seen the data. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, I, in, the, in the Warriors game, it was 38-28 uh, several minutes into the second quarter. Um, so that's like on the defensive end is really where, where, um, even more so on the offensive end that, that they're, they're, we're really getting off to race. And I wonder with, you know, and last, and last night, uh, the Kings scored 41 points in the first quarter <laughs> against the Lakers, uh, and the score, there was, I think also a 38, 28 lead at one point, you know, is it that, uh, complacency, is it that the, uh, Opponents are figuring out uh, and, and playing differently. Um, it's hard to imagine that um, as good a coach as they've been facing, you know, they're not better tacticians than Mike Brown. So hard to say what the reason is why it hasn't been sustainable. Maybe it's just not sustainable to play at that level for an entire game. Um, it's really hard to say um, what, and, and again, you know, the sample size makes it even harder to say what's right. <laughs> uh, really the cause of it. But you're you're right to have have noticed that.
0: For reference, by the way, the Bucks were the league leading score in the first quarter last year by a pretty significant margin. Then two through six on the list are within nine points of each other total across the entire season. And then there's a pretty big drop off to Memphis at seven and then another decently sized drop off to the Kings at eight. So it was a situation where there was a big bunch at the top, but the Kings were a bit below that bunch. And I guess I'm not particularly surprised to see that Milwaukee led in that stat either. But before we move on to the next game, there are two more points to hit and one was a positive for me. One was a bit more of a nebulous slash negative to me. So let's start with the negative first and close on a high note. Kevin Herter really struggled in this game. He had zero points, shot 0 for 5, all of those attempts from three-point range, only ended up playing 16 minutes. And that's been one of the big storylines for the Kings this season. You know, the discussion going back to preseason of whether Kevin Herter was sort of stabilized in that starting spot. And, you know we'll get into it with game three where, you know, he had some positives to take away from that one, at least, but this was a really tough night for Kevin Herter. And, you know, it's been a shaky start to the season, which given the sort of discussions around his starting spot, hovering around the preseason, you know, he definitely would have liked to get off to a stronger start than he has.
1: He certainly has given the appearance of having a confidence crisis. Yeah. Um, And uh, what I liked about, Uh, the Lakers game, even though, you know, he did not have a great game. He played very well compared to how he'd done before that. Um, But he, of course, hit a huge shot uh, with 32 seconds left in the game. But I I liked the fact that uh, Coach didn't overreact to his crisis of confidence and counted on him to be available and to be central to what they were trying to do at some key moments in the game. And gave him the opportunity to uh, try to get that confidence back and, you know, we'll see where that goes from here, but he seemed uh, and seemed as the game went on and of course, hitting that big shot, um, you know, could be very instrumental into, into him doing it now, you know, as far as, Um, what the breakdown is between him and Duarte that remains to be seen. You know, it could be, you know, a matchup issue. It could be what's going on in a particular game, who's playing well or what's needed at a particular moment. Um, They're very different players. And Mm -hmm. so um, we'll we'll have to see how that plays out. And, you know, can coach maximize both of them um, and in a way that uh, plays into their respective strengths. It's interesting because
0: they're very different players. But in my mind, the biggest contribution that they both bring is pretty much the same, which is being three point spacers with a great two man game with Demonis Sabonis, right? And so that's sort of the thing where even when you go to your bench, if you're Mike Brown, you're essentially bringing on someone who, you know, fills a similar niche, even if they're different players. And in terms of the minutes, I mean, it's obviously something worth tracking. Certainly, you know, the Warriors game, Duarte actually played more than Kevin Herter did, you know, 16 minutes as opposed to 26 for Duarte. The other two games, it's been much more heavily weighted in Herter's favor in terms of the minute load, but that's definitely something to monitor going forward. Before we get to last night's Lakers game, there is one sort of overarching thing that I think is key to note here, you know, in particular with this Warriors game, which is just how much more aggressive Keegan Murray has been on the offensive end this season. It's been such a wonderful development to see. There's one distinct moment that I remember that shows sort of the evolution for him from last season, which oddly enough was actually a shot he missed from the first game. But, you know, he catches the ball at the three-point line. He fakes, you know, gets the guy up in the air with the pump fake, starts driving towards the rim, gets a little bit of space in the mid-range and pulls up for a 15-footer. And, you know, again, he missed the shot, right? So, you know, the result might not be as good, but the process, I think, was really, really positive of him not just, you know, being purely a three-point shooter and as soon as he, you know, gets the ball inside the arc, he tries to keep the ball moving. I mean, he was a spectacular scorer at all three levels during his sophomore season in Iowa, and so... Seeing him get more aggressive, particularly with those mid-range looks and his willingness to drive to the basket is huge. And he took double digit shots in half of his games last season, 40 of his 80 games with most of those 40 coming in the latter half of the season. He's above that every single game this season. He took 16 shots in a game against the Warriors, and he only took 16 or more shots three times all of last year. So, you know, there was a lot of talk that we mentioned in our previews as well of how the Kings were looking to get Keegan more involved in the offense, looking to have him be more aggressive. And the early signs are clearly there, you know, not just in terms of the raw number of the shot attempts, but also in terms of the process, you know, elucidated by that one particular look in my mind, but really just sewn throughout his entire game as a whole.
1: You know, I think it's a combination of him getting uh, the experience of his rookie year behind him, and getting acclimated to um, the league and the way it's different from any previous experience any player has before they get to the association. And you're right, the the expectations that the coach and coaching staff have on him are different now, and they did not really uh, push that hard for that type of freedom for him last season and now we we were aware of the episode um, from the Lakers game where uh, coach said to him that, uh, that if you're not aggressive and you're if you're passing up shots, you're coming out mm-hmm. and so that's a totally different orientation and it's like a great combination of him being uh, more confident and more acclimated to the pace and to the style and to the the way the game is played. And, and having that year's experience under him as well as he's now being told that's what we expect from you. So those two things I think come together. So let's
0: now move on to the elephant in the room and talk about last night's game against the Lakers. And of course the biggest story from that is the De'Aaron Fox ankle injury. So per Numerous reports, but I will of course mention the reporting from a friend of the program, Jason Anderson, here. Fox is out for Wednesday's game against the Warriors, and the current timeline is essentially a wait and see, with the idea being, per Mark Spears and other reporters, that the team is optimistic for him to return in about a week, which would put his next game on Monday, the sixth, against the Houston Rockets. So we will, of course, break down the Fox injury in detail, but I do want to sort of start with some of the positive takeaways from this game because I certainly had a few that I wanted to talk through in terms of you know positive takeaways from this Lakers game, which was an exciting win for the Kings, an exciting overtime win, even if there's a bit of a storm cloud hanging over the game now that we know that De'Aaron Fox will miss some time with that ankle injury.
1: De'Aaron is showing to me Constant improvement. If we think back to when he came into the league and the holes that in his game, in terms of shooting and defense, for example, um, he keeps getting better and better. And he keeps, uh, you know, he now is is a is a reliable shooter from distance, um, which he never was before. Of course, he still has all the great parts of his game that he did come into the league with, that are virtually unguardable. Um, and, uh, his defense has improved significantly. So, uh, he's, you know, obviously the best or the second best player on the team and, uh, very important to the team. And I think he, one of the things that I like about him is he understands when he needs to have a total team orientation to get everybody else involved. And that's another thing that he's, Um, really progressed at. And then he also understands when he has to take over. And um, that's a a pretty unique uh, set of skills to have, to uh, be able to do both of those things at the right moments. Now, it's not perfect, but uh, I think he's made a lot of progress as a shooter in the way I just described and on defense. And of course they're going to miss him. But also back to what we talked about earlier uh, with the way the team has been constructed um, there, of course they'll miss him. But um, really put together a solid roster, they won't miss him as much as a lot of other teams might miss a player of that caliber if they had not constructed such a good roster.
0: We'll get into the sort of discussion of what the Kings might do with him out when we get to the preview portion. We'll go into that in more depth, but I do want to stick with the Fox point for a moment here. Those of you who have listened to the Deep Dives podcast on the No Ceilings feed are probably just as sick of me talking about this as my No Ceilings colleagues are. But I just go back to referencing De'Aaron Fox's development again and again. First of all, because it's been a joy to watch, right? But also because it's just so telling, in my mind anyway, about the development of young guards in the NBA. I mean, De'Aaron Fox came into the league as the fastest player in the NBA, pretty much. I mean you know, maybe you could make an argument for someone else in, you know, John Wall might make sense to argue at the time deer and Fox came into the league, but you know, Darren Fox entered the league is pretty much indisputably one of the five fastest players in the league and his rookie year. He really struggled because he was going hundred miles an hour all the time. And, you know, he started to show it in his sophomore season, but he developed a much better ability to handle pace. He, you know, got comfortable with his mid range pull up cotton shot and, since he got comfortable with that around, you know, year two or so, he wasn't just purely a drive to the rim, dive to the basket kind of player that really fleshed out his game, you know, year two, he did really well from three point range, but it wasn't really something that stuck, you know, year three, he regressed a bit, but you know, by year four, he was comfortable, you know, moving those pull-ups out to the three point line and, you know, spacing the floor that way and being able to take a hesitation dribble and, you know, slow down, let the defenders shoot past him before pulling up. And his development as a jump shooter is obviously huge for how the rest of his game works. But really, for me, the biggest thing was just him getting comfortable with playing at more than one speed. And you need to do that to be a successful on-ball guard in today's NBA. And he's just the prime example for me of watching someone who came into the league with, you know, ridiculous tools, but not a really well-defined idea of how to use them and since then year over year he's just continued to build in counters to his game and you know build in the ability to mix speeds and that's you know why he's gone from being you know another incredibly athletic guy who maybe doesn't figure it out to the player he is and you know someone like dennis smith jr was sort of in the same boat when he came into the league didn't really figure out some of the lead stuff as well as Fox did has since adjusted to become a remarkable defensive player. And, you know, that's certainly sort of the next step for Fox is continuing to build on the defensive side of things. But, you know, Dennis Smith jr is just an example. You can come up with point guard after point guard, after point guard who had all the athletic tools you would want, but couldn't figure out how to mix speeds. And, De'Aaron Fox's development on that front has just been a joy to watch and I think this audience will be less sick of hearing me talk about it than the No Ceilings audience. So there you go. So one other sort of thing to mention from game three before we move on to the preview section, we touched on the three new bench additions for the Kings, and we went in-depth on JaVale and Chris Duarte, but we haven't really gone in-depth on Sasha Vizenkov yet, and I think this game is a great example for what Sasha can bring to the table. You know, his box score line, if you look at it, isn't the most impressive. You know, 11 points on 10 shots an assist, a block, you know, no fouls, four rebounds. It doesn't really leap off the page when you just look at the box score. But in the game, I mean, his four makes, they all were at really crucial times, you know, two triples, which were huge, you know, in big spots in the game, particularly one one of his threes came when the Lakers were, you know, making a big run and he sort of cut that off. You know, the Lakers did manage to tie the game up in the end, obviously, which is how we went to overtime, but... That shot really stopped a Lakers run that could have let them run away with the game if he hadn't made it. You know, he also had a big bucket on an on a, you know, tip rebound inside. And that's I think what stood out to me with Vizenkov the most in this game, but over the course of the season as a whole, which is you know, all the buzz in the preseason was this guy is a next level shooter. He's one of the best shooters in the world. He's breaking these practice records that we have. But Sasha Vizankov was MVP of the EuroLeague for a reason, right? You don't get to that point by only being a floor spacer by just shooting the ball 7,000 times for three point range. And you know, that's what really impressed me about Vizenkov in this game is, you know, his three-pointer wasn't exactly falling, but he got to the basket, you know, he competed for that rebound. He he got the ball up, he hit shots in key moments, he kept the ball moving, even if he only had one assist. The element that he provides to this team offensively is huge. And, you know, we can go on all day about how the defense isn't quite where you want it to be, you know, still definitely needs work, but his ability to fit in as more than just purely a 3.4 spacer is going to be huge for helping the team's offense function, you know, beyond just when he's spacing out to 30 feet. I would,
1: I would differ only in this respect that, uh, I would place more credence in the numbers that he had, because remember, he didn't play that many minutes. Yeah. So extrapolate those to, a, uh, you know, people say 36 minutes, whatever uh, number you want to use, his numbers were more impressive than they might appear. He is remarkable in his, even, even in the limited experience he's had at this level. Um, his offensive game has so many positive elements to it. He is a great shooter. His cutting is just wonderful. Um, his passing is excellent. He's a very smart player, and he's a team-oriented player. He does, as you, as you indicated, the right things at the right time. Um, I think and, and you're you're right to focus on the fact that yeah he is a great shooter but that's not anywhere near the entirety of his game particularly this offensive game um, and his defense isn't that bad I mean it's not good but he's very smart he understands you know his his defense in part depends on his intelligence and he can uh, maximize even though he's new to this level of pace and uh, other things that are different. He is such a smart player. I expect him to be adequate on defense and maybe even adequate plus on defense um, as he progresses.
0: It. Wouldn't be the two of us on a podcast if we didn't find in a way to shoehorn Nikola Jokic discussion multiple times somehow into the podcast. But, you know, even if you have defensive limitations, which certainly Vizankov does in terms of athleticism, I don't think anyone's denying that. But so much of defense is just about effort and positioning. And, you know, the thing with Sasha is even if he might not always get over to the right place quickly enough, you know, I'm confident that especially by the time we get to, you know, january february march you know maybe even into the playoffs that he'll have a better idea of where he needs to be but even now i mean you know this guy's been a pro for many many years he has a very good idea of where he needs to be it's just can he always get there in time and you know the right notion of where to be and the effort to try and get there is so much of defense that again i mean i think adequate is you know the The aim, because, you know, given what he provides on offense, he doesn't need to be more than adequate. And, you know, maybe he can get to adequate plus, as you mentioned, but even just the adequate baseline is really all he needs to do when you get to the sort of baseline offensive value that he provides.
1: Well, one of the things that you just indirectly referenced about the way he plays on defense that I noticed is he really understands when to help and how Mm -hmm. to help and to uh when to uh, d- play that sort of defense that uh depends on um helping uh players uh when they're isolated or when they're in a difficult situation he, i I noticed that just watching last night his his instincts that way are are and intelligence that way are very good
0: so let's now move into the preview portion of the podcast and The Kings have a light week ahead, which I think they're very happy about, particularly in light of the De'Aaron Fox injury. But, you know, even so, always nicer to have a light week. So the Kings are playing the Warriors on Wednesday, this time at Chase Center rather than here in Sacramento. And then the Kings are traveling from there to Houston. They will be playing the Rockets on Saturday. So I think the place to start here is rather than sort of the Fox injury, let's just start with sort of the difference between this season and last season. And, you know, this was something that we discussed in the season preview podcast with Jason Anderson, where the Kings started 0-4 last year. And this season, you know, they had a few tough games to start, but a relatively easy first 10 games of the season. And, you know, obviously the Warriors game on Wednesday night will be tough, especially, you know, in San Francisco. But... They're playing the Rockets on Saturday. They're playing the Rockets on Monday for the first game of next week. They're playing Portland after that. This is a light start to the schedule other than, you know, again, two tough games to start against the Warriors and the Lakers. And, you know, the Kings won the game they were expected to against Utah, and they split the games against their two Pacific Division opponents. So... It'll be interesting to sort of see what this looks like. But, you know, even already, the Kings are off to a hotter start than they were last season. And obviously, given that they finished last season 48 and 30, that's a pretty solid sign to start the year.
1: And we don't know, again, as you say, how long Fox is going to be out. But um, if he's going to be out for more than uh, one game, um, it would be good that it's against these opponents because the Kings are obviously superior to them. Doesn't mean a win is guaranteed even with them. No no wins are guaranteed in the league, but um that's fortuitous
0: yeah you it's funny because even when we're talking about how incredibly fortunate the kings were with injuries last season and how you know the fox injury is not as strong of a start on that front, even then they got lucky with the timing of it, right I mean this could have been a four game week and then you know, it could have been a four game week with much more difficult opponents that Darren Fox was missing. And instead, you know, it seems like, yeah, of course, the rematch against the Warriors is going to be tough. But two games against Houston followed by Portland is among the very competitive teams in the Western Conference about as good as you're going to get from the games that Fox is likely to miss. But with the Aaron Fox out, we do sort of have to talk about, you know, what that's going to look like for the Kings. Presumably Malik Monk will take the starting spot with Davion Mitchell likely to play a much bigger role. Malik obviously was huge for the Kings in that overtime against Lakers last night, you know, 11 of his points came in that overtime. And you know, he was the driving force for the Kings in that overtime, and he'll clearly be relied on more. And You know, that comes with his pluses and minuses. With Malik, I mean, you're going to get some of the, you know, attack the basket, athleticism, you know, verve around the rim that, Really, nobody else on this team besides him and Fox provide, at least at the level that they provide it. The passing comes and goes with Malik. I mean, he led the team, you know, with seven assists in game one. Last night, he had a couple of really questionable passes at not great times that, you know, led to Lakers transition opportunities. So the assumption, I think, is that he won't, you know, have the ball in his hands all the time, right? I mean, Domas is clearly going to be leading the charge there. But in terms of minutes, clearly, Malik Monk and Davion Mitchell are going to get the lion's share of those minutes. And, you know, I have to say on brand here and say that I'm also excited to see if Colby Jones gets a bit more run. You know, he's played a couple minutes in garbage time to start the season, but, you know, he got some run at point guard in the preseason and was quite effective at it. And he's someone who I thought the Kings got him, you know, for a song, essentially, you know, getting him at 34 when I thought he was a clear first round pick is a great get for them. And, you know, given his all around game, his ability to be a jack of all trades, you know, fill rolls defensively, fill rolls offensively, I would love to see him get more minutes, but certainly the biggest minutes beneficiaries of the Fox injury are going to be Malik Monk and Davion Mitchell. With that in mind, we should also sort of talk about the Sabonis side of things, which, you know, he and Fox are the two stars, the two fulcrums of the offense. And, you know, the minutes load might mostly be going to Davion and Malik Monk, but the responsibility, a lot of it is going to rest on Sabonis' shoulders. And, you know, these two games next week are going to be fascinating to see how Sabonis does because, you know, it's kind of mean to say this, but Kevon Looney did punk him a bit in the playoffs last year. And, you know, he's someone who's given Devonis fits many times, you know, not just in the postseason. So that's going to be a tough matchup for him in the next game. But with the Rockets game, I mean, I am a huge fan of Alper and Cengun's game, but his game is offensive. He's not a great defensive player. And he is certainly someone who Sabonis can take advantage of out there. So it'll be really key for him to be on his game in Houston. You know, that's a game that the Kings could lose. I mean, any team in this league could lose a game to any other team if they don't come in with the right kind of focus and attitude. And Demonis is going to have to be the leader in that game. He's going to have to be the leader in the Warriors game too, but really in Houston, that's where he has an advantage and he'll need to take advantage of
1: it. Who better? <laughs> He's, yeah. you know, he is that kind of player with that kind of skill set and determination. And, um, yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll have to see. And I would add, Nick, also um, mm-hmm. that uh, we hope to uh, have our listeners join us every week and uh, also point out to them that we did uh, Pacific Div- Division previews yes. prior to the season with guests, uh, typically beat writers for the most part, from teams around the, the division. Uh, and uh, those are still available. You, you better than me can tell. Nick can tell them how to find them. Uh, But we do have um, Jason Anderson doing the Kings preview, as well as the beat writers for the most part doing uh, individually the uh, uh, previews for each of the other Pacific division teams.
0: Absolutely. And, as Ray mentioned, you can find all of those in our backlog, which of course you can find on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, we should be available there. And if we are not, then please let me know, you know, reach out to me either Twitter at NBA Johnson or at Kings Weekly pod and let me know because we should be available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. I think we, I think we hit it all. Is there anything else you wanted to mention on this recap, precap before we wrap everything up?
1: Uh, That's it for me for today. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Nick.
0: All right, thank you so much to all of you for listening to this episode, and thank you for your patience, since this one's coming out slightly later than we will usually have episodes release. We have a very, very special guest for next week's episode. So definitely be on the lookout for that. That'll be a ton of fun. And I know that we're both very much looking forward to recording that one. If you've enjoyed the podcast so far, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end, but is especially appreciated since we are a relatively new podcast. And if you have any feedback about the show, feel free to reach out to me on social media or email uh, social media at at nba johnson or of course at kings weekly pod be sure to follow the pod on twitter as well and you can reach me via email at aj.nba at gmail.com and as always thanks so much for listening